0: If you have a copy of God's Word, could be on your device, could be in the Pew Bible, your own Bible, turn with me to Judges chapter 19. Uh, judges chapter 19, it's in your bulletin, it will also be on the screen behind me. We've been studying the book of Judges this fall, uh, in the first couple of weeks of this year, and we have come to the end of our study uh, through Judges, and uh, You're going to see very quickly that it's a tough way to end. It's a tough way to end a series. But it's the way the book ends. And so it's the way that we're going to end our series through Judges. Uh, I do this for a living. God's called me to study the Bible for a living. It's my calling that He's given me. Uh, I've spent four years in graduate school immersing myself in the Bible. And in my opinion, and in other people's opinion, there is no story in the Bible that is more horrific than the passage that we are about to look at this morning. If I get to choose on whether or not to preach on this passage, I ignore it every single time. You see, that's the beauty of expository preaching. At Faith Church, we preach straight through books of the Bible, and the reason why that is good is that it forces you to deal with difficult passages like this one. Passages when given the opportunity, I would skip. Remember as we go through, uh, as we've been going through the book of Judges, we have seen, and I've said this a lot, it's Judges is a downward spiral. And so the book continues to get worse as you go through it. And we're at the end and so, in some ways, it cannot get any worse than what we are about to see in Judges 19. Israel is rock bottom. Last week, we looked at the story of Micah, and the author was showing us what it looks like spiritually to do what is right in your own eyes. This week, he shows us in Judges 19 what it looks like morally for people to do what is right in their own eyes. And you need to know as we go through this, this is very vivid and graphic, but it's intentional. That's what the author is trying to do. He's trying to depict the horror and sin and brokenness in such a way, and if you're reading it correctly, it should make your stomach turn. This passage is intended, the way it's written, to make your insides shake. And with that being said, some of you this morning, as I read through and we walk through this passage, it's going to evoke a lot of emotion and possibly stress for you. And I just want to say that if you need to take a break, if you need to get up and leave because of the stress that it causes you, I totally understand. You will not offend me this morning. Also, this is going to possibly bring some new things to the surface for some of you because you've never heard some of these things from the pulpit. You've heard them in the culture, but you're going to hear them from here, from God's Word, uh, and God speak to these things. And it might bring up some new emotions for you or perhaps some old emotions and some things might come to the surface. And if that happens this morning, I just want to encourage you to follow up on that. You know, our tendency is to shove those things down and Ignore them because they're so painful and hard, but you should talk to someone because it's through the telling of your story or perhaps the retelling of your story that you find healing and hope and redemption. I said this in the letter, uh, but we want to be as leaders and pastors of this church, we want to walk with you through those things. We will have a few elders up here after the service if you want someone to pray with you or someone to talk to you. If that seems overwhelming and intimidating, I understand. You might not want to do that or feel comfortable doing that. And if you don't feel comfortable doing that, I want to encourage you to call the church or email one of the pastors this week, and we'll find someone for you to talk to. What I want you to hear is we're with you. We want to walk with you in uh, these things that possibly you're struggling with. So with that in mind, Let's read Judges 19 and let me remind you that this is the very word of God. In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him. She went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah And was there for some four months. We're going to skip down to verse 14. Let me fill in the gaps. So his concubines at her father's house. And the Levite decides that he wants her back after four months. And so he goes to her father's house and gets her. And they're on their way back home. Verse 14. So they passed on and went their way. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night in Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjaminites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, Where are you going? And where do you come from? And he said to him, We're passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, from which I come. I went to Bethlehem in Judah, and I was going to the house of the Lord, but no one has taken taken me in to his house." We have straw and feed for our donkeys and bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man with your servants. There is no lack of anything. And the old man said, Peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him to his house and gave the donkeys feed and they washed their feet and they ate and drank. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house so that we may know him. Let me be a little more direct. If you've got an NIV, which is a little clearer, let's bring him out so that we will have sex with him. That's what the passage is saying. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now so you can violate them and do with them as seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out, made her go out. She did not want to go out. He made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all the night until the morning. As the dawn began to break, they let her go. As the morning appeared, the woman came and fell at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his own way. Behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up. Let's get going. But there was no answer. And he put her on the donkey and the man rose and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife and taking his Hode of his concubine he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel and all who saw it said such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day consider it take counsel and speak this is God's word and even Judges chapter 19 God says it's useful for teaching, correcting, and training in all righteousness. So let's pray and let's ask God to do those things in our midst this morning. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would come and speak. Some of us, if simply reading this passage, feel tremendous shame. Others of us perhaps feel broken and used, and as if you don't love us because of the things that we've either done or the things that have happened to us. So come this morning through your spirit and speak clearly through me. Would you give us soft and receptive hearts and more than anything through this very difficult, dark passage, would you show us that even here we see the good news of the gospel. Even here, we see Jesus clearly. Give us hope this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. If Judges has taught us anything this fall in our series, it is that glory and gore go together. Glory and gore. We've seen it all the way through the book of Judges. And you know what? You see it all the way through the entire Bible. Think about the life of Jesus. Jesus. It's a picture of glory and gore, isn't it? You think about the gore we see of the cross and the glory of the resurrection. And I think that's really important for us to remind ourselves of, particularly in a passage like this, because as Christians, we want to always simply hang out in the glory. And that's a good thing, but we want to avoid the gore. And I think this passage forces us to come to grips with reality. I hear people say all the time, uh, the Bible just doesn't keep it real. The Bible's G rated. The Bible is not G rated, and the Bible 100% keeps it real. It's actually, if you read the Bible in most places, it, we would say it's NC 17. If we were to give it a rating. But I think we could make a very strong argument that Judges chapter 19, if it were to be made into a movie today, it would not even be allowed to be shown in the theaters in our country. That's the Bible. And so the question is, okay, so why talk about it if it's that awful? Why not skip it as lots of pastors have done throughout church history? And as some commentators, there are commentaries on this book that just skip. And omit Judges chapter 19. Why don't we just do that this morning? Well, I tried. If I'm honest, we're going to keep it real this morning, aren't we? I tried. And God wouldn't let me. Friends, there are perpetrators and victims of sexual assault in a church our size in this room this morning. And when we hear perpetrators, don't automatically think dark alley wearing a ski mask. No, um, there's lots of situations in which people do not give consent and people move forward anyway. And so there are both perpetrators and victims of sexual assault in this room this morning. And I want to talk to both groups this morning. And honestly, I have struggled and struggled with how to do that. Because I want to give perpetrators real hope this morning. And at the same time, I don't want to alienate those who have been victims of sexual assault. And so through the process of writing this sermon, I've gotten lots of help, friends. I've talked to lots of counselors. And one of the most helpful things that a counselor has pointed out to me is the difference between sexual assault and sexual abuse. And so I want to make that distinction on the front end. What is the difference? Well, abuse is towards a minor who is incapable of giving consent. Abuse is often subtle and sinister and very confusing. Assault, on the other hand, is perpetrated against someone who can give consent. But they don't. And they are attacked anyway. Assault is often, not always, but often much more aggressive and much more overt. This passage, again, for clarity's sake, is dealing with sexual assault. That's a picture here of sexual assault, not of sexual abuse. And I know there are people here this morning that have been sexually abused. And one of the things that scares me this morning, again, keeping it real, is um, I don't want to minimize your pain. I don't want to minimize the pain that has caused your life. It is real and it is important and it's something that we need to talk about and we need to talk about at the church. And I want to encourage you to talk to someone about what has happened to you. But for the sake of clarity, I will be gearing my comments much more this morning towards the sin of sexual assault. Why? Well, we want to be a church of honesty. My goal for our church. We you know our vision for our church. Well, one of the things I want our church to be is I want us to be a place where, where where we are not afraid of the gore. Where we're not afraid to enter into hard things and offer the transforming hope of the gospel. Because friends, if Jesus doesn't say anything about this, then what are we doing here this morning? If Jesus doesn't enter into the darkest places of the human existence, He's not worthy of our worship and let's pack it up and let's go home. We're wasting our time. But He does. As hard as this passage is, and as much as I've struggled with it, and as hard as it is to read, I'm glad it's in the Bible. Because you know what it says? It says that God's not afraid of the gore. And the hope of the gospel is that God doesn't avoid the horrors of life, but actually engages them by sending his son Jesus in order to give us hope and to bring restoration and redemption. Two points this morning. The horror of the story, number one, and the hope of the gospel. Let's look at those two things this morning. And the first point, the horror of the story. I just want to walk through the story. And bring out a few things that maybe are hard for you to see at first reading. So that the passage actually comes to life and maybe makes more sense to you. So let's look at the story. Uh, The horror of this story begins with a Levite and his concubine. Did you hear that? That should automatically send you thinking, whoa, a Levite and his concubine. Something's not right here. Why? Well, because the Levites were the pastors they were the if you were a levite in the old testament you were a priest you were serving god and you were a minister and set apart for ministry and so right off the bat something's not right this levite the pastor has a concubine who were concubines well they were not prostitutes and they were not an official wife uh, they were second class a second class wife of sorts but if we want again we're trying to stay direct here Uh, They were sex objects. And so let's set the story up this way. We have the pastor and his sex slave. The Levite, who's supposed to be set apart for holiness, has been swept up in this pagan culture and has taken a concubine. Not good. Verses 2 and 3. She's unfaithful to him, and she goes away to her father's house for some four months. And if you read through the passage in those few verses, which we didn't actually read, uh, it doesn't appear that the, the Levite cares very much. He waits four months. Well, he eventually wants sex, or status, or perhaps both, and so he goes and gets her after four months. And he stays a few nights at her father's house and eventually uh, they start on their way back home. Look at verses 10 through 12. Again, look at them in your bulletin or in your Bible because this is important. It's getting dark and they need a place to sleep for the night. And the closest town that they're passing through is Jabus, That eventually becomes Jerusalem. But at this point, and again, don't miss this, it was Canaanite country. It was a Canaanite city. It was a pagan town. And notice the Levites' response here. The Levites' response is, I won't get hospitality. I will get abused in this town. They will rob me. This is not Israel. Uh, This is Canaan. And this scares me to stay in this awful place in this Canaanite town of Jabus. So I want to move on to Gibeah. I want to move on to uh, my home turf. I want to get in God's land. And so they continue on and they end up in Gibeah, which is an Israelite city, which you would think would be a safe haven. And so he goes to the town square. What's the deal with the town square? Well, they didn't have hotels or hostels back then. And so what you would do is you would travel to the square and you would wait there, and people that lived in that community would pass by and see that they're, you're an outsider, that you don't live there. And so they would say, they had very high value on hospitality. And so they would say, come stay with us. You're passing through. You're traveling. We will bring you in and host you. Well, you notice here, they go to the town square. Let me remind you, they're in Israel God's people should be about hospitality, and no one shows up. And they wait, and they wait, and they wait. Eventually, this old Ephraimite man comes, and look at verse 20. Let me uh, translate that for you. Basically, in verse 20, this old man says, Whatever you do, do not stay in this town square. It's that dangerous. They go back to this man's house, they get settled in, they have dinner, and then all of a sudden, can you imagine being into this scene? All of a sudden, they're having a great time, and this mob of men completely surrounds the house, and they start banging on the door, and they say, let us have the Levite, the man who's staying at your house. Why? So that we can rape him through the night. Can you imagine what you would have been feeling in that home in that moment? This mob of sexually charged and aggressive men are surrounding the house, beating down the door, and will not leave until they get someone. Nowhere to escape, nowhere to run. And so what does the old man do? Well, think, he'll keep walking through the passage. He does what I think. I don't have really a category for, for thinking. He says, no, you can't have the Levite, but you can have my daughter. You can have uh, this concubine, and you can violate them. That's the passage. And you can have your way with them and do what you think seems good to you. I want you to think about that just for a moment. I think because it helps bring out the passage to us. There are five people in the house. You've got the Levite, the old man, the Levite's male servant, and then you've got the two women. You've got the concubine and his virgin daughter. And he offers up, notice, why didn't he offer up the male servant from the Levite? He only offers the women why. That's the question you should ask. Well, because it was a patriarchal culture, and women were seen as property. But it was also a culture that prized hospitality. And so this old man had a duty to his male guest. His honor was at stake. And so he gives preference to this man he's never met over his daughter and as appalling as that is for women to be treated as property and it is definitely appalling but friends it happens it still happens every single day in our country Hashtag #me too and so then the question is is the bible endorsing a patriarchal society absolutely not genesis chapter 1 verses chapter 1 verse 27 says that God created male and female, men and women, both in His image with great dignity and with great honor. Women are not inferior. They deserve honor and deserve, and this woman deserved to be protected. And the point that this passage is showing us is the Levite, the pastor, is not in line with God's ways whatsoever. And so as you continue in the story, the crowd's are not budging. They will not relent. And so the Levite grabs his concubine, throws her out the door, and closes and locks the door behind me, behind him. And it says very clearly in the text they abused her throughout the night. What did the Levite and the old man do? Well, they went to sleep. Can you imagine? This woman is getting raped through the night, and they got into their beds and went to sleep. And the next morning, the Levite gets up. He has his morning coffee. He has his breakfast. He uh, leisurely packs his luggage, and he's walking all. He's, he's, not, he's not thinking about the concubine. He's ready to go home. And as he opens the front door, you can imagine him tripping over her on his way out the door. And then, how does he respond with compassion? No, look at Verse 28 the horror of his response. He talks to her like an animal. Get up! Let's get going. And she does not respond because she cannot respond because she is dead. The Levite's actually outraged. Why is he outraged? He's not morally outraged. He's not outraged because she's been raped He's outraged because she's dead. They have ruined his property beyond repair. And so what does he do? Well, he cuts her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sends 12 bloody packages to the tribes of Israel. Why? Again, not because he's morally outraged, but because he wants to pay them back. He wants to wipe the men of of Gibeah off the face of the earth because they've ruined his property. And so he sends these bloody packages to the Israelites, to the tribes, so that he can stir them up and invoke an all-out civil war. And that is exactly what happens if you read the rest of the book of Judges. Civil war breaks out and the Israelites, thousands of Israelites get killed because they begin killing one another. And that's how the book of Judges ends. So what? What's the application for us this morning? What do we learn from this passage? Well, first of all, let me mention three things. First of all, and let me be clear about this, God absolutely thinks this is horrible too. Look at verses 1 and the last verse of the chapter. You'll see that the book ends. He begins by telling you it's horrible. In those days there was no king. And he ends by telling you that it was horrible. In those days, there was no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so God is saying, this is what it looks like when you attempt to rule your own life. This is an extreme picture, of course, but it's what it looks like when someone has no restraints and has no king. Secondly, if Twitter was around thousands of years ago and this woman would have lived through this event, she would have most certainly tweeted, me too. Why do I say that? Well, because sexual assault and what happened to this woman has been going on. It's not just a recent thing. It's something that's happened from beginning of time, ever since Genesis chapter 3, when sin entered into the world. The objectification of women is not just a modern problem either. And I think this needs to be said. The objectification of someone is not just a man problem, a, a problem with men either. Women also objectify and use men. And so church, are there ways this morning that you are listening to the culture about how to view those from the opposite sex? You know, it's easy too to read a passage or to go through a passage like this and say, well, man, this is really extreme. At least I'm good. I can't really relate to this. I'm off the hook. Well, maybe for you, it doesn't look like, and for us, it doesn't look like this. Maybe it looks like you staring at a computer screen at pornography. And oh, by the way, pornography is not just a man issue. I've been on the college campus. I was there for 12 years. It's also an issue for women. And so, maybe it looks like for you staring at a computer screen at pornography and treating the person on the computer screen as an object for your own pleasure rather than someone who was created with great dignity in the image of God. Where do we need to repent this morning of the ways that we treat one another? Friends, and you go and start walking down this road, there's not a one of us, myself included, that doesn't need to get on our knees. And to repent of the ways we've thought about, looked at, and treated one another. Lastly, application. This passage tells us anything. It tells us this. Stop dividing the world into good people and bad people. There are no good people. We're all bad people. That's why the gospel's so good. We're all bad people desperately in need of Jesus. Think about this passage. This passage, the focus of this passage is not on Gibeah and the mob. We all know that's bad. The focus of the passage, if you really look at it, is on the religious people. It's on the Levite in this passage. This text reminds us that it's entirely possible for God's people to be no different than those that we think are evil and who hate God. The heart of the people in the mob, and the heart of this Levite, when you get underneath the surface, it's exactly the same. They're both self-absorbed, sinful, and self-interested. You see, that's why religion is so dangerous, because we get involved in so many good things, and we end up thinking that we're doing pretty good, and those evil people, they need to get with the program. Friends, the Bible never talks that way. The Bible says the seeds of every sin reside in your heart this morning. And if you haven't committed those sins, it's not because you're not capable. It's because the grace of God has restrained you. Secondly, you need some hope yet? I need some hope. Let's look at the second point. Chapter 20, it's interesting, this chapter, passage continues and the Levite starts retelling this story and he says this, those men surrounded the house and they intended to kill me. That's both true and false if you think about it. They didn't want to kill him. They wanted to rape him. But he knew that they were so charged And so out of control that they would end up killing him in the process. And that's exactly what happens in the passage. The concubine ends up losing her life. And the point I want you to see is everyone in the house that night knew that they were not safe, they knew that they should not go outside or they might lose their life. And so the Levite opens up the door and shoves the woman out against her will and throws her to the crowd and sacrifices her life to save his own. She gets abused and violated. He sleeps safely in his bed. She gets torn to pieces. He's sleeping peacefully in his bed. She dies. He lives. She didn't ask to be the Savior. She did not want to be the Savior of this story for these people in the house, but she was And if you think about it, who would want to save this guy anyway? Who would want to save him? He's inhumane. He's ruthless and callous and wicked. Who in the world would willingly step out of the house and volunteer to undergo that kind of abuse just so this wicked man could be safe? You know who would do that? Jesus would do that. Jesus would do that for wicked people like us. Friends, this woman is a picture. It's a graphic picture, but it's a picture of our true Savior Jesus and what He's done for us. Jesus walks headlong into the things in this world that threaten to kill you and undo you. Jesus goes, and He's not against His will. He voluntarily walks into it. And He says to us, you stay inside. I will go and walk into this and undergo the unthinkable so that you don't have to. Is that not good news this morning? Mm. And You know what happens to Jesus? Think about this scene. He gets stripped naked. He gets violated. He gets abused. He is the one that is undone so that we can stay safe. This is why the gospel is so good. So that we can stay safe and protected. Friends, Judges ends this way. Very intentionally, because it wants you to beg at the end of Judges for Jesus. This should leave us begging and rejoicing and worshiping Jesus for what he's done. And the longer I'm in ministry and the more I study the Bible, you know what? I am amazed at Jesus' love for messy, wicked people like us. It's shocking. And I know this morning, and I'm going to close by speaking to two groups. I want to speak to those uh, who have maybe perpetrated sexual assault and those who have been victims, and then we'll close. But Jesus' love for shocking, is shocking for messy, broken people. And some of you this morning have things in your stories that are, you feel like are too big that are too ugly and too shameful, and you think there's no way God can forgive me for this. Where is it this morning that you feel that about your story? Maybe it's the fact that you acted out on a same-sex desire. Maybe it's the fact that you lost your virginity in a way that you didn't anticipate, and you can't shake it. Maybe it's the fact that you've had an abortion, and you regret that. Maybe it's the fact that you are ashamed of the way you starved yourself or cut yourself. Where, what is nagging at you this morning where you're looking at and saying, this is so, so much of a weight on me that I can't get it off? Or let me say something else. Maybe it's the fact that you've done something like this. Maybe it's not this overt and aggressive, but maybe it's the fact that you sexually assaulted someone. And you want to run out of here after hearing this, and you want to hide your face never to show it again. Let me remind you of what I said earlier. I think it needs to be said. If Jesus can't heal you, it can't forgive you, and can't redeem you and restore the darkest places of your life, what are we doing here this morning? We're wasting our time. Let's go home. See, that's why the gospel's so good. Because there is hope for you. There's nothing too big for Jesus. Your secrets might be shocking, but the grace of God is more shocking. And more scandalous for you. And one of the surest signs that you are beginning to grasp the gospel and grace. Is that you begin to show the fruits of repentance. Remember Romans chapter 2 verse 4. It's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. And so what would it look like for you to begin. If you've committed sexual assault. To begin to repent of that. Maybe you've never really dealt with that. And started to walk through that. Well, let me mention a couple things. First, it would look like a life of honesty. You would own it. And, and, and by owning it, you've got to get to the sin beneath the sin. You've got to get to the idol of the heart instead of just addressing the behavior of the assault. What's underneath the sin of sexual assault? Well, <clears throat> anger perhaps. Because you haven't gotten what you've wanted. Or maybe it's an abuse of power or control repentance would look like you've given up power and owning that fact of what you have done. The fact that you've used power not to serve and give your life away, but you've used it in a harmful way against someone else. Secondly, it would involve humility. It would involve not making it about you, your repentance. How do you keep from making it about you? Well, you talk to someone, preferably a counselor. Someone who's trained to walk you through these things in your life. And why do we do that? Because there's power in the telling. There's healing in the telling. Thirdly, it involves boundaries that you submit to and don't push for your good and for the good of your neighbor. And lastly, your repentance has got to consistently rest in Jesus. Because if Jesus is not in your repentance, and this is really easy to do, then it's really not repentance. If your repentance is all about you, then it's really not repentance. Rest in Jesus, the one who had all the power and gave up the power to restore and redeem you. And here's the thing, when you go to Jesus with repentance, you know what's so good about it? He doesn't label you. But he actually moves towards you and embraces you. You see, the gospel says you're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of, of God's grace lastly to those who have been victims of sexual assault I want to say a word to you verse 30 it says they'd never seen or heard anything like this that had happened in Israel and it says consider it take counsel and speak I'm really glad that's there, because here's what it's saying. It's God's way of saying very loudly and very clearly with tears in His eyes, this should not be. That this is evil. And I think that's really important, because oftentimes sexual assault happens, and sexual violence happens in the dark. And it's often happens in secret. But what we see here, what happened to this concubine, and we don't even know her name. Did you notice that? She's not even named. I wish we knew her name. But even though we don't know her name, what we know here is that God knows her name. Verse 30, very clear. God knows her name, and God God has seen what has happened to this woman. And some of you this morning have had something like this, perhaps, that has happened to you. You've been sexually assaulted. And if that has happened to you this morning, I want you to know that I'm so sorry that that happened to you. But more than anything, I want you to see that God's sorry. That God sees what has happened, sees everything that happens in the dark And you might ask, I don't know, why did this happen? Why did God let this happen? We don't know. God doesn't tell us that. But what we do know is that he hates it and he weeps with you. He grabs you by the hand and he weeps with you over it. God is with you. And not only is God with you, but as pastors and leaders and elders in this church, we are with you. We want to walk through these things. We want to be a safe place. A place of healing and restoration. A place where you will be heard and believed. And a place that, uh, listen, if you come, I, I can't promise we're going to have all the answers. We probably won't. But what I can promise is that we will listen. Lastly, I want you to know that it's not your fault. It wasn't the concubine's fault either. What you see here and what you know is evil is evil and God thinks it's evil too and he's coming again in order to do something about it. Friends, Jesus comes and offers real hope to real sinners. He dies on a cross and he offers forgiveness and healing and acceptance and joy beyond your wildest imagination. And not only that, Jesus comes and he offers hope that he will come again and make all the evil and the wrongs in the world right. To make the horrific things that have happened to you and been committed against you, Jesus promises to one day make those things right. See, we all desperately need a Savior, don't we? We all desperately need Jesus this morning. And so, will you come to Jesus And find hope and forgiveness and healing and restoration. Let's pray. Father, thank you for moving into the darkest places of our lives. I'm so thankful. This is hard, but I'm thankful for passages like this because it tells us that you're not afraid of the dark. Not afraid of the gore and the darkness and you want to come into it. You sent your son Jesus to come in and to heal us and give us hope. Would you forgive us this morning for trying to be our own king? Forgive us for the ways we objectify one another. Give us faith to really believe that we don't have to come to you put together. We don't have to come to you with a perfect record. That the good news is we can come as we are, messy and broken in our repentance And oftentimes that repentance is half-hearted. And we can come and you will embrace us and restore and redeem us. Help us to believe that in Jesus' name. Amen.